basically everything in life at one point has a rise and then at some point has, has a fall. You look at the history of nations in the world, they rise to power and then at some point fall into obscurity. Leaders that rise into their positions of power and authority and then fall from influence. Athletes, you know, rise to dominance in their career and then a, a couple decades later fall away to anonymity. Pop stars rise to popularity and then forgotten about fashion trends rise in popularity and then fall away into oblivion only 20 or 30 years later to rise up again and you're like, that should have stayed in the 80s. Why is it rising again? But today as we, as you've heard, begin a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see in 1 Samuel the rise and fall of, of many leaders, Eli, the prophet Samuel, the first king Saul, then king David, and at the heart of the story really is the rise of a king, the rise of a king in Israel. Now, of course, behind all these characters and behind this story is God himself, the, the central character of the entire story of the Bible, who is our true king, who is always ruling and reigning. As we dive into 1 Samuel this week, there's 31 chapters, and so we're actually going to be in 1 Samuel, brace yourself, Lord willing, all the way until May. Uh, we will take a break for Christmas and take another break again for Easter. Uh, by the way, if you didn't pick up one of these beautiful purple uh, scripture journal Bibles, these are on the back. These are a resource for you to be able to take notes and underline. Um, you'll be, we'll be studying this book in, in life groups this fall um, or on your own, in your, in your own private devotions. Grab one of these. You also should have seen a, a, a beautiful bookmark that was in your bulletin this morning. It's got our reading plan in there. So thank you, Lachelle, for putting all that together and, and designing our series um, images for this fall. We're excited uh, about that. And of course, you're thinking, wait a minute, these scripture journals is First and Second Samuel. Hang on to them. Uh, so long as the Lord awaits a little longer to return, we will study Second Samuel at some point. I'm thinking maybe not until the, the beginning of 2025, but we'll, we'll see how things uh, unfold. Um, actually, originally, fun fact, uh, the books of First and Second Samuel were considered one book. They were just called Samuel in the Hebrew text. It was all uh, one book of the Bible on one scroll, and only later was it uh, translated and divided into part one and, and part two, what we know as First and Second Samuel. Um, I also just want to point out that we have not preached through an Old Testament book of the Bible here at Living Hope for over a year. Um, we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It is all profitable to us as Christians. But admittedly, learning and growing and studying an Old Testament book is harder than learning from the New Testament. The Old Testament deals with the ancient history of Israel and all these foreign cultures and obscure characters and names that we can't pronounce and, and perhaps most noticeably, the, the, the name at least, the name of Jesus of Nazareth does not in the Old Testament, but make no mistake about it, all of the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story and since we as Christians are now children of God, through faith in Jesus, that means when you read Israel's story, it is your story as well, through faith in Christ. Now, this morning, uh, just a heads up, we're actually not going to start chapter one until next week. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm just going to introduce and lay out the foundation and the themes and where we're headed in this book of the Bible. And we're going to do that by answering these three questions. One, what is the historical context of 1 Samuel? Second, what is the central theme? And thirdly, how do we read this book specifically as Christians. 
So we're going to jump right in the historical context. We can look at the first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. We read going all the way back to, to Genesis, the story of God and his, uh, his plan for humanity begins there where he creates the world. The first humans, Adam and Eve, are created in his image, but sadly they turn from God. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and so the curse spreads across creation. But God makes a promise there in the garden that one day the offspring of Eve will rise up and crush the head of Satan. Now the line of humanity begins to grow and spread until at at a certain point in the story of Genesis, God narrows his redemptive work on one family. And he now has a plan for a guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he says, through them, I will bless your descendants. I will be your covenant God. I will build a nation Now, bear in mind, this is a barren couple that have no kids. But he says, I'll build a nation from the line of Abraham and give them a land. And through them, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And so we read, as as Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob. Jacob's name, by the way, gets changed to Israel. That's why we have the nation of Israel. Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the story continues, but this moment of hope uh, reaches a hard point when the 12 sons of Israel end up as slaves in Egypt. And then we read in Exodus how after over 400 years of slavery, God raises up Moses, a new leader, to lead the people to redeem them from slavery. And then assisted by his brother Aaron, Moses and Aaron lead the people. They become a nation. They gather in the wilderness and they assemble an army. They build a tabernacle for worship. They receive the laws of God for how to live. Leviticus Moses continues to give those laws to govern the people. And the focus is how the people of God are set apart as holy. And there's this whole sacrificial system that's developed to atone for their wrongs, to make amends for their sins so that they can be holy and follow the one true God. We read in Numbers how Israel reaches the promised land, this land that he's given to the people. And they have the opportunity to enter, but they are afraid, they doubt, they don't trust God. And so they are, in essence, sentenced to wander for 40 more years. And God says this faithless generation must die off and will raise up a new generation to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, they're on the the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, ready to cross. And Moses, prior to his death, he's not going to go into the promised land. He's going he's to recount and review and reinstill the laws and the covenant with the people. And we read in Deuteronomy how the, the covenant with God that he had made with them on Mount Sinai is reinforced. Moses dies. His second-in-command, Joshua, is appointed to lead the people. And then in the book of Joshua, under his leadership, the 12 tribes of Israel go in and spend about seven years conquering the land of Canaan. And the war is won. They receive their inheritance. The 12 tribes settle into the promise of land. And yet, the enemies of God mount of resistance and there's still many battles to be fought that we read about in the book of of joshua which then leads to judges if you're with us just a couple years ago in 2021 when we studied the book of judges what we read is that joshua dies and no one is appointed to lead the nation and so what happens is this loose confederation of tribes that are still sharing in their faith in yahweh spend the next several hundred years without a central leader battling foreign enemies in the promised land they're wrestling with idolatry they're struggling with national unity. And over the years in the book of Judges, these regional leaders rise up to lead and to fight, but none of these judges can ever unite the nation or truly bring peace. And the book of Judges ends with this sober reality in in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that, that's not meant to be a high note. That's meant to be a, a troubling sign that there was no king in the land. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes, which now brings us to the book of Samuel, this next chapter in Israel's history. The book of Samuel is going to cover a period just over about 100 years, and leadership really is the central concern of this period of history. Who will lead God's people? Does Israel need a king? Who will be the king? And how will this king rule? Will it be a good godly king? Is God still the king of the people? If we have a, a, a human king, is God still the king of the people? And so that becomes the central theme of the book of 1 Samuel, the rise of a king. And I think that leadership and authority and influence and, and uniting vision is a key issue for us as well as Christians in the church. Who is our king? Who do we look to personally, privately, as a family, in our nation, in the church? Who is our king? Who is leading us? Who do we submit to? The scripture, of course, teaches again and again that God, our creator, is the only true king of his people. King is not a title that we often use for God. We think about him as creator, as father, as savior, even friend, all beautiful biblical truths, but he is also king. Psalm 47 says it like this, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, for God is the king of all the earth. Listen, whether you acknowledge it or not, God is ruling and reigning as king. The question is, do you look to him for leadership, for vision? A king has multiple duties we'll read about in ancient Israel. One of them was to be a leader, to, to provide vision for the people. He also upheld the laws of justice. He led the people into battle. God is our king for those things as well, calling us to righteousness, casting vision, calling us to, to walk in, in his will, leading us in battle against the temptations and the evil one in our own lives. Is God your king? It's going to come up again and again and again in the book of Samuel and and. And it is a central theme and a crucial issue for us. You may be here this morning as a Christian. You may be here this morning active in your faith. But who is your king Monday through Saturday? Who is it that you're looking to to lead you and follow you? Is it the Lord God who is king of all the earth? Now, as I said, in Israel for a time, they had human leaders, Moses and Aaron and Joshua but they had no king, no central person in, in, in authority. Moses was never called king because they were a theocracy. That means that God alone was their king. They, they were directly ruled by God as the priests and the prophets ministered to them on God's behalf. But in Deuteronomy, if we rewind a bit, Moses actually prophesied that one day, once you get into the promised land, once you settle, one day you will ask for a human king. And Moses says this to the people in Deuteronomy 17. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, I think we have this scripture, 1 Samuel, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 17. Maybe not, you can just listen. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it, then I will say, then, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And when he sits on the throne, remember Moses is prophesying about this before it's happened. And when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And he shall be with him. And he shall read it in all of his days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law. 
Moses is saying, look, one day you'll ask for a king. God will give you that king to be like all the nations of the earth. But, but this king who sits on the throne should fear the Lord, should keep the law of God, that ultimately he should acknowledge that God is his king. And now we're seeing that play out in First and Second Samuel, that the people of God want a human king. They said it's no longer enough to have priests. It's no longer enough to have prophets. It's no longer enough to have regional leaders. We want to be like everybody else. And in First Ch- Samuel chapter 8, the people request a king. And they come to the Samuel prophet, the prophet Samuel. Now, what's interesting is, and we're going to read about this in a few weeks, Samuel tries to convince the people that this is not a good idea. He says it's a bad idea for you to request a human king because he's eventually going to take advantage of you. But the people are not convinced. And in 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 19, we read this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, listen to this, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now what's interesting is that God is going to answer their request and give them a king despite the fact that, as I think it's pretty clear, their motives are not good. They're like, we want to be like everybody else. Everybody else has a king to lead them in the battle, to cast vision, to call them forward. We want to be like that. God reassures Samuel. He says, look, Samuel, this is part of my plan. And Samuel feels some personal rejection. And God says, no, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But I'm going to give them a king anyway, and that's what the story of Samuel is going to unfold. Now, why would God give them a king if their motives were flawed and the kings would ultimately fail? I think God is doing at least two things. First, the Lord is going to show and make obvious the inadequacy of human kings, and as a result, he's going to stir their need and their longing for the one true king in heaven. But secondly, the Lord is is going to lay the foundation. He's going to build a covenant ultimately with King David. We'll read about in 2 Samuel that one day the true anointed one, the true messianic king will rise up in God's kingdom. And Jesus was that king. Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise and this expectation and this longing that the people had. The true offspring of David, the true king of Israel who arose to fulfill the covenant, who rescued God's people and restored the world. See, the story of Samuel is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And we get this masterful story with intriguing characters and suspenseful adventure and this deep spiritual meaning. The word of God to us, fulfilled in Christ. 1 Samuel can be divided into three main sections. Chapters 1 to 7, we're going to meet Samuel the faithful prophet. And he's the central leader who rises to influence, not as a king, but as a prophet to speak for God. And he has this miraculous birth we'll read about next week. And then Samuel rises to become a powerful vessel for God. He's a faithful prophet. He's a righteous judge. He's a courageous kingmaker. And then around chapter 8 through 15, we're going to be confronted with Saul, who is a king, but he's a failed king. And he's crowned the first king of Israel and quickly He rises to power and hopes rise and the nation is united and he sees military victory. But we find out that for Saul, God is an afterthought. You ever catch yourself in that place where where you realize that you're living your life as though God were an afterthought? That's what happens to Saul. And so he quickly falls out of favor and he, he descends into selfish pride and rash sin and ultimately madness. And hope begins to rise again with the rise of of David in chapters 16 to 31. David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king. And and David rises to prominence. He defeats the great giant Goliath. Some of you remember that story. Probably the most famous story in the Old Testament. 
And, and David begins to lead as a general in the nation of, of Israel, and he leads Israel's military to victory. But Saul gets jealous of David's popularity, and so David spends years on the run. But rather than fight back, David patiently waits for his time to rule as king. David never becomes king in 1 Samuel. He's anointed king, he's prophesied to be king, but he's waiting patiently as a warrior, as a man after God's own heart. And and 1 Samuel shows that David does have a heart for God, and he will remain faithful, he will uphold his integrity. But sadly, when David finally becomes king in 2 Samuel, the story does not end well. And we see there, too, that David has feet of clay. And all this rising and falling of the leaders really fulfills God's proclamation in in chapter 2 of Samuel where God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And we see this rise and fall depending upon who is humble, who looks to the Lord, and who will stand in pride to try to lead on their own. In fact, next week in chapter 1, we're going to meet this godly woman, Hannah, Samuel's mother. And in chapter 2, there's this song recorded that, that Hannah proclaimed and, and is now part of the inspired word of God. And this, this really sets the stage and is brought to life throughout the book. Let's listen to these prophetic words in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heaps to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I'm going to preach on this in two weeks, so I've got to hold back a little bit. But man, what a beautiful passage, right? There is none like our God. Look, God and God alone doesn't rise and fall. He's a rock. He's firm, immovable. And the call is to set your life on that rock. You can leave that scripture up there if you would. To set your, your life on that rock as your solid foundation, as the one you look to, as you lean upon, because there's none like our God. There is none besides him. There is no one else who, who falls, who doesn't fall from power and influence and authority. God is the one who brings low on the earth. God is the one who raises high. He raises the poor, it says, and the needy from the dust to sit with princes, to sit in seats of honor. But there are some that oppose God. And the scripture says that those who stand in prideful defiance will be broken to pieces, will be cut off in darkness. But for those that are faithful, it says the Lord guides the feet of his faithful ones. What a beautiful promise. He gives strength to his king, and he exalts the strength of his anointed one. See, God alone, the Lord, is the true king over all the earth. Amen? God sets the very pillars of the earth. He's the judge of all the earth. And listen, you can rest in that this morning. Whatever you walked in with this morning... Whether you're following all of this history and these outlines and everything else, you can rest in the fact that God is king of all the earth, that he has set the very foundation of the earth. And we see all around us people rise and fall. You yourself may have experienced, you know, that the top of your game. For me, it was fifth grade. Like, it didn't get any better than that. I was the biggest and the strongest, the most popular. And then I got to middle school, and I was like, oh, boy. Right? 
Maybe you have reached the top in, in business or in marriage or in family or in popularity or in influence or in your athletic career, but wherever your rise is, you will at some point fall, and some of you are in the midst of a descent right now where you're watching your dreams fade or you're seeing your influence wither. Maybe your bank account is draining. Maybe your relationships are crumbling. Maybe inner peace and emotional stability is struggling, but you can rest that the Lord is king, that the Lord is judge, that he is good, he is righteous, he is powerful. He is reigning over our world and he is reigning over your life. And, and all the rise and fall both in your life and in the world around us in politics and in, in society is not random, it's not haphazard. Do you realize it's the hand of God? God is sovereignly the one as king who is ruling and reigning over the rise and fall of everyone else. And we come back to that promise that he guards his faithful ones. Brothers and sisters, hold dearly, hold firmly, be faithful to the Lord God, your king, because he guards his faithful ones. He holds us. Trust him. Trust him in humility. Humble yourself before God and you will be exalted, the scripture says. So that's where we're headed over the next, whatever it is, nine months or something. But we're going to read this book together. And here's the thing. I want us to read the book of 1 Samuel as Christians. I had a professor in seminary that said, as you read and study, as you teach, as you unpack the Old Testament, don't interpret it like they would interpret it in a synagogue, right? Today, there are, there are Jewish people people of the Jewish faith that are reading the same stories that we're reading, that are pulling out lessons that believe it's the word of God, right? And, and, and there may be some truth there, but at the end of the day, we don't want to read the book of Samuel like we're in a synagogue because we're in a, in a Christian church with a specifically Christian meaning because Christ is the fulfillment of the story. So how do we read the Old Testament as Christians? As I said earlier, we believe that all of the Bible is inspired, but it doesn't mean it's easy to read or easy to understand or easy to apply. And so let me just tell you, let me put you to ease, okay? I, I have a seminary degree. I spent four years studying the scriptures, the theology, the Old Testament, right? I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 25 plus years. And there are still times where I read the Old Testament, and I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is, this is strange, this is weird, this is difficult. It is more difficult. But as with most things in life, the more you put into it, the more you put out, take out of it, right? So we can dismiss and overlook some of the challenging stories and aspects of the Old Testament. Or we can say, no, we believe this is the Word of God. We're going to dig deep and reap the fruit and hear for what God has to say to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that the stories of the Old Testament were written down for our instruction, for you, Christian, and not just general instruction, but the Old Testament leads us and strengthens our faith in Christ, is relevant to your marriage, to your parenting, to your friends, to your school, to your dreams, to your hopes, to your emotional struggles, to your fear. The Word of God, yes, even Samuel, is inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. You, you know verse 16, but let's, let's see where the, it starts off. In verse 14, Paul is telling Timothy his young follower in the faith, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now let's stop there for a minute. Timothy did not have the New Testament, right? Those stories, those accounts were being written, were being assembled, were being guided by the hand of God. When Paul tells Timothy, continue in the sacred writings that you've learned from childhood, he's talking about the Old Testament, He's talking about the obscure stories and the genealogies and the laws. Listen, 
Paul tells Timothy, stay at it. Continue in what you have learned in those sacred writings. Listen, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament is able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament can lead you to Christ, can stir you to faith, can give you hope on your dark days, can help you overcome your fears, can remind you of the power of God and the promises of God and the provision of God in your life privately to build your hope as husbands, as wives, as parents, as teenagers, as young adults still figuring out your way. The Old Testament is the inspired word of God because all scripture, verse 16 says, is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Friends, you can be complete and equipped for every good work through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So how do we read? How do we study? How do we interpret those obscure poetic lines, the ancient regulations, the old stories, and the difficult prophecies? We, we read it as Christians with Christ in the center. Now, it, if you thought that this was a little bit convoluted and up, and up here, bear, bear with me because we're going we're gonna to dive even deeper. Okay, so there's a few different approaches we can take when we read and study the Old Testament, right? What's called called hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we read the Bible in a way that is accurate, that is in line with what God has inspired, that makes a difference in my life? Some people take the exemplary approach, and there's good here. Now, the exemplary approach means that you read a part of the Bible, and you look at the characters of the story, and you say, that's a good example. I want to follow that and use it as a a model for my life. That's a bad example. I don't want to follow that. And we're going to do some of that in 1 Samuel, because the reality is you read these stories, and you're like, I identify with her. I identify with him, right? You're going to just naturally. But here's the problem. If this is your sole or only approach to reading the Old Testament, the problem is that sometimes the good characters do bad things, and sometimes the bad characters do good things, and sometimes you can't tell which is which, right? And so there's, there's, there's value here, but it cannot be our main guiding principle, right? We don't want to turn the Bible into some moral book of Aesop's fables, Christ in the gospel, is our guiding principle. So we, so we have the redemptive historical approach. The redemptive historical approach says, I'm going to read the Old Testament, and I'm going to look at these events and see how they are part of God's plan as God orchestrates history in his plan of redemption. That means God has a big overarching plan, right? It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. It ends with Jesus returning to restore all things and make all things new. And so there's this big story arc of the Bible. The redemptive historical approach to reading the Old Testament says, I'm going to look at those pieces and see how they fit in the big picture story of the Bible. Again, there's value here because God is sovereignly at work through all of history. And he's using the stories and the history to build and to develop his plan of redemption towards the coming of Christ. We're definitely going to see it in the book of 1 Samuel in the life of David, right? Because David ultimately leads to the son of David, to Jesus who fulfills the covenant that God made with David. However, if this is our only approach to reading the Old Testament, it can remove us from a a personal connection with God's word. It can make practical application more difficult if we're only looking at the big picture storyline. What about the systematic theological approach, right? Theology, the study of God, knowing who God is and how he works, study of humanity, the study of salvation, looking at right and wrong. Systematic theology just means you're taking theology and you're making it systematic. You're putting it in an orderly approach. Now, of course, the Old Testament is rich with theological truths. All of the Bible is the eternal 
word of God for us today. But the Bible is not a systematic theology. It's very interesting. I love Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. You guys know that, right? But God didn't give us a systematic theology. He gave us a book of poetry, of prophecy, of narrative, of laws, of stories. And so we can and should pull doctrine out of the Old Testament. But if we do that in a way that's disconnected from history or that's disconnected from an encounter with God, then our souls may not be fed. And so we're, we're going to look at theology, but we need more than that. This fulfillment approach reads the Old Testament and says, how do the central themes and characters and symbols, how do they ultimately foreshadow Christ and his saving work? And so in many ways, what we call the fulfillment approach to reading the Bible is, is, is kind of a, a controlling principle that doesn't exclude the first three ways, but it informs and empowers us in reading the Old Testament through the other approaches. And so we keep Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection central to Scripture. That means when we're, we're looking at it for examples, we realize that ultimately Jesus is the one who fulfills any human patterns we find in Samuel. He's the one that we seek to imitate. The redemptive historical approach means that God is always moving history forward, yes, but towards climax in Christ. And so it's Christ that we center ourselves on. The systematic theological approach says, look, we're not just learning about God, we're learning about Jesus, not just in an abstract way, but in a personal way, right? You can be smart about... So do you remember when I said at every point, leaders of God will rise and fall, right? So what we have just done for you this morning is given you a visual aid of that reality that none of you will ever forget, right? And you will say, do you remember... In 2023, when Pastor Tim fell off of the stage and God demonstrated in a tangible, visible way that every leader who rises will at some point fall, right? And so praise God for how he works in vivid ways. This idea of a fulfillment approach, I believe... And people much smarter than me would say, this is how Jesus himself read the Old Testament. Jesus himself, after he had risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, these are my words. He's speaking to his disciples. He said that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Let me point out a couple of key things here. First of all, Jesus is sitting with it. This is, this is amazing. He's doing a Bible study with his disciples. He just rose from the dead. And he's like, let me explain to you what it says about me in the Old Testament. He talks about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, scholars point out that to a first century Jew, there were three sections of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the first five books, right? The prophets and, and the Psalms, which would have in, included um, other, other uh, sections of, of the Old Testament, not just the Psalms, but the poetic books. Jesus is saying, it's in all of the Old Testament, all three sections, it's all about me. And he's saying it all points forward. Now, what's interesting, he says, thus it is written, 
that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead. Jesus is not quoting from a specific Bible passage. That shouldn't be troubling. That should be encouraging because he says, look, thus it is written, not in one specific place, but in all of the Old Testament. It's written that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and rise again and be proclaimed to the nations. The climax of of his life was his death and resurrection, and it's the fulfillment of history, the fulfillment of Scripture itself. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Friends, listen. I, I know the stage just fell apart, which was hilarious, by the way. You're welcome to laugh. But that's not the most important thing or should not be the most significant thing that you take away from this morning. Jesus has, has just said the Bible itself Fulfilled is fulfilled in me, in my life, in my death, in my resurrection. And that's our call this morning as Christians. Whether you walked in here today, a mature, committed Christian for the last 30 years, or whether you're just here visiting, whether you're trying to figure out what does it mean to get my life together? What does it mean to have hope in this life? What does it mean to have purpose? How can, how can I pull my marriage together? How can I get out of debt? How can I find hope? How can I overcome the crippling anxiety or depression that I'm facing? It's Christ. And him dying, not just so that you would have forgiveness, dying so that you'd be cut off from sin, from death, from the devil, from the plague of darkness that you can't walk away from, rising from the dead. And through the resurrection, the Bible says that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but his spirit now lives in you, and now you too rise to new life. Now that you can have hope in the midst of darkness, you can have peace in the midst of deep, deep turmoil. Now you can have hope and direction through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that's the center of the whole Bible. It's what the whole Bible is about. That's what our church is about. And I pray and hope that today the the Lord gives you faith to say, God, I'm going to walk out of here with you in the middle, with you as my central hope. So how do we read the Old Testament? How do we read 1 Samuel? As Christians, we read it with Christ in the the middle. That means all the characters and the symbols and the themes, they they ultimately prefigure Jesus. They are shadows of him. We're not just going to look for moral teaching or godly examples or theological truths. We're going to look for Christ. So I want to show you this diagram. Some of you have seen this before, and we'll kind of wrap up with this. There's a blog article I wrote some time ago called The Old Testament is About Jesus. If you want more on this, just go to our website. There's a great little search bar in there. Just type in The Old Testament is About Jesus, and this will come up. And so as we are reading... And, and by the way, you can overdo this. This is not like some secret code or something. It's just sort of a helpful like, approach, okay? It's an adaptation of a guy by the name of Ed Clowney, a professor at Westminster, author of a book called Preaching Christ in All of Scripture. And I've kind of adapted it and added to it a little bit. So let's take for an example. Okay, so David and Goliath, everybody loves that story. We put it up in, in our nurseries over the crib. It's a very gory story. It should not be in your nursery. Um, so take the story of David and Goliath, right? Chapter 17, one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament. So let's start at the, at the bottom. First, we're going to identify. So we'll, we'll take David, right, as a major theme of that story, or a major character. The main theme is that David trusted God. He stood up in courage as a representative of the army of Israel, and he defeated the enemy, and he had victory, right? So we can see that in the story. So then we go up the left side of the diagram. How are we going to interpret that? What's the larger truth? Well, the deeper theological meaning is that God defeats his enemies and that he gives victory to those who trust in him. But it's not enough to just stop there because if you just stop there, all you have is some theological truth. 
okay? We're going to take the theological truth and say, how is it fulfilled in Christ? Because Jesus told us that the whole Bible is about him. So how does that character, that theme, that theological truth fulfilled in Christ? Well, hopefully for some, you can see that David merely foreshadowed Jesus. That just as David stood on the battlefield before Goliath as a representative of God's people, Jesus stood as our champion before sin, before death, before the devil, before an insurmountable enemy, not a nine-foot-tall giant, but death itself. And Jesus won the victory for us as God's representative. And Jesus defeated Satan on the cross just as David slayed the giant on the battlefield. And now we apply it into our own lives. Listen, only once we've taken the, the, so to speak, long way around, now can you get to your life. Because I know that all of us walked in here this morning saying, I want to learn about the Bible, but I want to learn about the Bible because my life is hard. And, and I, need, I, need, I need help to, to live tomorrow. I need, when I get up tomorrow morning, I need something to hold on to. And so we're going to apply the theological truths and the biblical history to our lives. But first, we're going we're gonna to go around and we're going to see how is it centered on Christ. Listen, the Bible is only relevant to you because it was first fulfilled in Christ. And because you have faith and you trust him, you are now in him and he is now in you. So whatever was true for Jesus is now relevant to your life. And so I would say this, please avoid taking the shortcut. You see the shortcut across the bottom of the diagram. Just reading the Old Testament and just looking for some little, some little quick nugget that may or may not be true, but it's easy and it's a quick fix. But is it, is it Christ-centered and is it theologically accurate? Don't, don't apply the Bible to your life without going through Christ. And so we see that Jesus, our victorious king, defeated the enemy and now through faith in him, we too can stand in faith. See, it's not just that, well, David was courageous, so now I need to be courageous. And if my boss is a meanie and, and, and keeps giving me extra work to do, well, I just need to be courageous because David was courageous, right? That's the shortcut. The long way around says, when you were full of fear, when you were overcome by an enemy that you could not face, Jesus stood up before you as your champion. He defeated the enemy. Now his spirit fills you, and now you can stand in faith when you want to whimper in fear. Now you can trust God when everything in you says, I don't know if he can be trusted for me. Now you can stand up in front of a nine-foot giant and say, God will have the victory. Not because you've mustered faith, not because David was a character worth modeling yourself after, but because the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus himself, fills you and empowers you to stand in faith and encourage against the enemies. Because Jesus has defeated our enemy. And you... No longer need to be reigned and ruled by sin. No longer do you need to live with the looming fear of death. No longer does the devil himself need to tempt you with lies, telling you that you're not loved or you're not enough or that you can't really make it in this life because those enemies and those lies have been defeated. And so we're going to talk about the rise of, of, of this king. And, and yeah, it's kind of David. But ultimately our longing and our prayer is that Jesus would rise up in our hearts. Amen. As the worship team comes, let me, let me read for you one more verse. Romans 15, verse 4. Isn't this beautiful? Check this out. It says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So Paul is, is saying, look, we're Christians, but whatever was written before this day 
was written for our instruction, for instruction as Christians, that through endurance, through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not need endurance or encouragement or hope, then, then none of this is for you. But if you are struggling to move forward, to, to have strength, and you need endurance, the Bible and the Word of God can bring you endurance, can bring you encouragement on days when you're down and discouraged and defeated, can bring you hope through the Scriptures. Do you hear that? Because the Scripture is the Word of God. It's not an old dusty book. It's the Spirit of God bringing truth into our lives that we might have endurance and be encouraged and walk in hope. So let's stand together. We're going to close with another worship song. And we're going to pray that the word of God would speak to us, that the spirit of God would stir us and encourage us that we might have hope. And so, Father, as we close out this morning, as we sing together this ancient song of worship, we pray that you would be our vision, that you would turn our eyes from the things of the world that distract us, turn our eyes from the desperate darkness that seems to be at our own feet that you would turn our eyes to you and give us a vision of you oh high king of heaven we set our hearts on you stir our faith build our hope speak to us that you would be the true and only high king of heaven that you would be the only one who is our vision who is our hope lord we come needy we ask you to fill us in jesus name be worshipped.